By the way, my name is Daniel. I'm the community pastor here. Uh, like Pastor Brad uh, mentioned, uh, he is in Colorado. Um, just his son got married last night, so they're having some family time, which is great. So it's my honor to get a chance to share the word with you today. And we're kicking off a brand new series today called Valuable. And valuable is all about, so there's so many things in our life that we can value. And there's so many things as a church, collectively, that we can value. But what are the most important things to value? And then how are we able to give those things value? And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the course of this series. And this series boils down to our four core values, which if you know them are hope, healing, peace, and purpose. And we say those an awful lot around here, but we believe in those things an awful lot. And so we're going to be looking at how we discover those things as a church and how we discover those things in our lives. But what we're going to be doing today is laying a foundation for all of that. And we're going to be laying that foundation out of our vision statement, which is another thing we say here at the end of every service. We say at the core of who we are is, if you know it, say it, loving loving God and loving people. That's right. Well, the good news is we did not arbitrarily make that up. We got that out of Scripture. And so we're going to be looking at that Scripture today. And if you guys would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we will be in the book of Matthew today, chapter 22, verses 34 through 39. Once again, that's Matthew 22, 34 through 39. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. If you're new to church and you don't have a Bible, just to encourage you to go to your app store on your smartphone and uh, download uh, the YouVersion Bible, or really any of the Bible apps are great um, anymore. And so just download a Bible app. You can follow along. Once again, I'm reading out of the NLT or the New Living Translation. And uh, this story is one of the most well-known scriptures in the New Testament. And it's where we get our vision statements, where a lot of churches honestly get their vision statement from. But it's one we're going to look at today to lay a groundwork for this next series. But really, it lays a foundation for our very faith. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? We're going to look at some of those things today. So let's read this scripture, Matthew 24. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Today, we are going to be looking at the law of love. Jesus came to establish not a, not a religion of rules and a religion of dogma, but a religion of love. And so we're going to be looking at the law of love today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chance that we have to gather together in your house, Lord, to be around your people, to lift you up in song, Lord, to hear your word today. And God, right now, we open up our hearts to receive from you. God, would you speak to us this morning? Would you speak to us and would you challenge us and would you, would you push us and would you remind us today of what our faith is about? God, for those that are in this place, God, that are exploring who you are and they, they're not come to faith yet, God, would you speak to them? If that's you here in this place, just open up your heart to hear from God today. We're not gonna pressure you. There's no high pitch, no high pressure sales, but we just want you to hear from God today. And so, Lord, would you speak to all of us in this place that we would leave different than we came in? If you're ready to hear from God, can I get a big Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. So as Paula mentioned, yes, it is fall. And by the way, can we give Paula a hand? Just um, That was her first time to do the offering and announcements, and she did a great job. Um, and so for fall, for a lot of us, it means back to activities, back to football, 
back to sports, you know, whatever that your kid may be into or whatever you may be into, sport-wise. For some of you, it means that you are getting out on the golf course a lot more right now. I'm just curious by a show of hands, how many people have at least, you know, played a round of golf, maybe been to a driving range, you know, done some golf? Okay, that's, that's a lot of us. Good deal. Uh, some hardcore golfers over here in this section, apparently. So I used, I mean, I, I really, for a period in my life, a couple years, I really wanted to be good at golf. And um, I used to be in sales before I came uh, here on at the church. And, you know, in sales and in business development, there's a lot of golf that's played there. You know, a lot of United Way tournaments and things like that. A lot of chances to, you know, rub shoulders with clients and all of those things. And even when I came to the church, there was a lot of golf tournaments and things like that that happened on, you know, with our district and the chance to mingle with other pastors. And of course, you know, if it's a church thing, we fellowship, you know, we don't just hang out, we're fellowshipping together. And so, you know, I really, I went through this period, I wanted to be really good at golf. There's only one small problem. I'm not good at golf at all. In fact, I stink at golf. The first time I ever went golfing, I kid you not, driving range, driver in hand, I hit a golf ball and, and the driving range tees have these like poles and I, I ricocheted the ball off one pole, it bounced to the other pole and went behind me. I hit a golf ball backwards. I don't even know how that happens, but I did it. So I stink at golf. But golf is, you know, it, on the surface, it's a lot of fun. It seems like such a simple game. See ball, hit ball with stick, chase ball, rinse and repeat. Like that, that in essence, is what golf is. But the more I got into golf, I realized that golf is not a simple game, and it has a lot of rules. For example, did you know that you cannot just wear whatever you want to to the golf course? That if you show up to the golf course in your, you know, Def Leppard tank top and your cut-off jeans, that you will be denied access to the golf course, which is just crazy to me because usually when we go golfing, it's hot outside. And so now you're telling me I have to not only pay a lot of money to walk around and sweat, but I have to get dressed up to walk around and sweat outside. I have to wear a collared shirt and I have to wear nice pants just to walk around and sweat. It's crazy, but they have rules about what you can wear at the golf course. But not only that, but there are so many rules that happen during the game of golf. For example, who gets to hit first? Who gets to hit next? Who, what happens when you hit the ball out of bounds like me or you lose the ball like I often did? If you hit the ball in the water, what happens if you hit the ball in the sand trap? How many times can you hit the ball before you just have to give up and pick up the ball and move on to the next hole? How many, you know, when do you let someone play through? When do you ask to play through? You can't just, for example, you can't just drive the golf cart everywhere. You paid your own money for access with the golf cart, but then you get on the golf course and there's all these signs telling you where you can and cannot drive the golf cart. It's an absolutely infuriating game. How many times can I curse before I have to be saved again? These are all the questions <laughs> that I have when I'm playing golf. You know, it's, I, for some reason, I don't know, it's some cosmic cruel joke. I'm really good at bowling. And man, I would still just give anything to be able to wave a magic wand and be just as good at golf as I am with bowling to trade in a useless talent for a more useful talent. But that's not my lot in life, unfortunately. So when it comes to our faith, I think there's a lot of similarities to the rules that happen when, when I talked about with golf. See, when we first come to faith, when we first come to Jesus, it seems so simple. Man, it's just about coming in and believing and loving God, that, that our faith seems so simple. 
But for, for some of you, you've been following Jesus and you've been around church and the things of God long enough that all of a sudden you realize there are all these rules, written and unwritten rules that I did not know existed and what it means to follow Jesus. For example, you know, when you follow Jesus, all of a sudden there's things that Christians should watch and things that Christians shouldn't watch. There's radio stations that Christians do listen to, but radio stations that Christians don't listen to. There's books that Christians read and books that Christians don't read. And there's people that Christians hang out with, but then people that we don't associate ourselves with. And there's words that we say, but then words that Christians don't say. And there's chicken that Christians eat, but then chicken that Christians don't eat. Any Chick-fil-A fans up in the house know what I'm talking about. There's all of these rules when it comes to our faith. At first, it seems so simple, but the more we get, oh, I have to do this, and I have to give, and I have to serve, and I have to read my Bible. Well, how much am I supposed to read my Bible? I'm supposed to pray. Well, how much am I supposed to? Am I praying enough? Am I not praying enough? Am I praying too much? Am I reading my Bible enough? Am I, do I, can I read a devotional? Does that take place to reading my Bible? What if I just listen to a sermon? Does that count as my quiet time? All these different rules. You know, can I give? How much am I supposed to give? Am I supposed to give 10%? They say just to give obedience, but am I not giving enough? And I have to pray about that. Am I not praying? It's all of these different rules when it comes to our faith. And I think for a lot of us, it can lead us to a point where in frustration and just kind of in anguish, we just kind of feel like, God, just tell me what you want me to do to be happy with me. Just give me the list, God. Just tell me what's important so I can do those things and I can be a good Christian and I can be blessed and you can love me and I cannot go to hell. You know, it's like, just give me the list, God. And we want to reduce our faith down to, God, just give me the rules. Give me the checklist. Give me the to-dos and give me the to-don'ts. Let me know what I need to do so that you'll love me and so that I'll be a good Christian. But there's a problem when it comes to reducing our faith down to a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. And there's more problems with it than I can get into in this message, but one of them that I want to talk about is when we do this, when we reduce our faith to rules and to-dos and to-don'ts, and God, just give me the things I'm supposed to do, just give me the list of rules, is that we are really good when given a list of rules, just as a, as a species, we are really good at finding the loopholes in the rules. And you parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you give your kids a list of rules. You give your kids things to do. And what do they do? They are experts in finding the loopholes in what you told them to do. Amen, parents? Your kids, you tell them to clean, your, clean their room and you walk to check in their room five minutes later. And the first thing you see is clothing or toys right in the doorway. And you're like, I thought I told you to clean your room. And they say, well, this one's not really technically in my room. It's kind of half in my room, half out of my room. Finding the loopholes. You want to pull your hair out. Well, we are no different in that given a list of rules, we are so good at trying to work the system and find loopholes and find ways to do what we want to do anyway. How do I know that? Because so often... As church people, we say, well, what does the Bible say about this? You know, what does the Bible say about that? And we look for that, and if it's not specifically spelled out in the Bible that we can't do, it's like, well, free game. And we can turn the Bible and use it just so we can do what we want to do. Well, the truth of the matter is, if we're being honest and if we're being transparent, I can get the Bible to say pretty much anything I want it to say. It's a big book. And especially if I get to use the front part of it, it can say a whole bunch of crazy things. If you read the Old Testament, and there's some crazy stuff in there. 
And you can get it to say whatever you want it to say. And if we reduce our faith to rules, if we reduce our faith to the checklist and the to-do list and to the, I got to be this way and I got to be that way. And then if I do that, God will be happy with me. We're missing out on the point of the faith. Not to just homogenize, homogenize us and turn us into Christian robots. But the point of the faith is that God could have relationship with us. See, but the truth is, if our faith is just rules, it's nothing more than behavior modification. It's nothing more than self-help. It's nothing more than Jesus Christian philosophy. And there's all kinds of self-help, and there's all kinds of, you know, 10 ways to a better you, and there's all kinds, there's enough of that out there. But I believe the reason that you're here today, in these seats today, on a Sunday morning, is not because you need more rules. And it's not because you need more dogma. And it's not because you need more to-dos in your life. You're here today, and I'm here today because deep down we know we desire a relationship with Almighty living God that created us and wants to know us. And that's the reason you're here in church today is because you want to get to know a God that created you, and you want relationship with him. You don't want more rules. You don't want more to-dos. You don't want more condemnations. You want, and I want, and you need, and I need a relationship with the living, breathing God. And that's why we're here today, not for rules, but for relationship to get to know him. Amen? Amen. And so this, this is where we uh, come into the, the story. It is these teachers of the law, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they are trying to trap Jesus because Jesus is totally ruining their system. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they held the power because they held the rules. And in this time in history, the, the story was that you could only get to God by obeying the rules, all of them. And there was over 600 rules. So kids, you think your parents are bad? You think your teachers are bad? You think your workplace is bad? There were over 600 rules that the people of Israel had to follow, and they had to follow all of them perfectly. And that was the only way they were acceptable to God. And the only people who held the power as the gatekeepers of the rules were these Pharisees and these Sadducees. And so they were so angry at Jesus because Jesus came and he flipped the whole thing on its head. I said, if you want to get to God, it's not about rules, but it's about relationship. If you want to get to God, it's not about what you do just on the outside, but it's about where your heart is at. And man, that's just infuriated them because they felt their power weakening. And so they were doing anything they could to trap Jesus into saying something so they could have him arrested and have him killed. And so this chapter in Matthew is these accounts of these teachers trying to trip up Jesus. Man, but Jesus is so smooth. He's so slick, man. He just water off a duck's back with Jesus. So the first time the Pharisees go up to him and they ask Jesus, um, you know, about this, this tax question. So Jesus effortlessly evades it. Then the next question, and the Sadducees take the term. So there are two groups in power, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so the Sadducees come and ask him a question about the afterlife because the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife. And so they were sad, you see. <laughs> just letting that marinade right there. So they didn't believe in an afterlife. So they asked Jesus a question about the afterlife, and Jesus sets them straight. So everyone's looking at the ruins. The Pharisees now get a chance to reload, and they go up to Jesus, and they ask him this question. And this is where we pick it up. They send one of their best guys to ask him this question. This is where they pick it up in verse 35. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And once again, we have to remember there are over 600 of these bad boys. And so they're asking him to pick one. 
Now, why are they doing this to trap him? Because no matter what Jesus says, they're going to say, well, what about this? So if Jesus says something, they're going to say, oh, well, Jesus, apparently you don't uh, value the covenant of circumcision that we had. You know, oh, Jesus, apparently you don't value the Sabbath that much. Oh, Jesus, apparently Jesus does not like the Ten Commandments because he didn't pick that. So no matter what he said, they were trying to lead him into a trap. But that's why Jesus, what he says here is so pivotal because it marks a shift that we're going to see here in just a minute. In verse 37, Jesus then replies, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So there's a few things that we're going to see off of these verses today about what it means to love God, and we're going to explore this in a little more depth. And the first thing I want us to see is simply that everything starts with love for God. Everything starts with love for God. See, given the chance here, Jesus could have dropped the ultimate to-do on us. He could have dropped the ultimate checklist for us to do. He could have said, you know, okay, this is it. If you really want to make God happy, just like we talked about earlier, God, show me what to do. Tell me how to make you happy. Here's the chance. Here's Jesus's chance to say, you know what? Forget all the other stuff. You, you just do this. You just read your Bible and pray, and you'll be in good shape. But Jesus doesn't do that. And it's so frustrating because sometimes don't we just want him to drop the checklist on us and say, okay, you know what? Read your Bible, pray, go to church, don't cuss, you're going to be all right. And, and, you know, we wish Jesus would do that because it wouldn't be so much easier. We would know how we were doing. We would know how we stack up. We could get up every day and evaluate. Well, I did, I did three out of the four, so, you know, I'm, at, I'm 75%. I'm a C student right now with God, but I have tomorrow to bring my grade up. You know, we, just, we could so easily evaluate it if he would have just done this. And we want to reduce our faith. God, would you just make it easy? And would you just reduce it so that we know how we're doing, we know how we stack up? But Jesus, given this chance, doesn't do this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That it's a shift. It's a shift from the old way. It's a shift of it's all about my performance, and it's all about my works, and it's all about how good I do. And it's a shift to something brand new, that it's all about my heart. It's about, it's about my love for God, and it's about my passion for him, it's about my desire to know him, and it's a shift from rules to relationship. And that's the shift that's going on here with Jesus. And I think it's really important for us to see this shift because the, the truth is that, that our obedience does not always lead to love. But love will always lead to obedience. And the whole old system was based on if I do right and if I do good, that, that something, you know, I'm trying to change who I am. And so I'm, I'm regulating every millisecond of my life to try to be what God wants me to be. And Jesus shifts that and he says, but if I love God, then all the other stuff will take care of itself. If I love God, I will always do what's right. If I love God, I will make right decisions. If I love God, that, that, that the transformation is not an outward in transformation, but that it's an inside out transformation. An outward in transformation is where we fall into the trap of Christian philosophy and self-help. And if you do this and do these practices and do these things that you'll be, that God will change your heart. But God wants to start with changing your heart. God wants to start with you and start with love. And that's why I think it says in here that, that the heart is the first thing. 
Love the Lord God with all your heart. They didn't say love the Lord your God with all your mind first. Because if we get reasoned into our faith, then we can get reasoned out of our faith. That too many times we approach faith purely intellectually. And it's almost like, it's almost like we're buying an appliance. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, and any of you guys, you know, you like to make like a pro and con list before you make like a purchase decision. And you know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, you go in and let's say you're going to buy a washing machine, for example. And you look at that washing machine, you make a list. It's like, okay, well, this washing machine has the steam cycle. But this washing machine uses less water. And this washing machine it comes in the fun color I like. And this washing machine is cheaper. You know, and this wash, and technology is crazy now. And this washing machine has Wi-Fi. And this washing machine has an app. And this washing machine will do my taxes. You know, and this washing machine drives my kids to school. You know, and it's just so you look at all of them and you make a decision based on what works out best for you and your life. And my fear is, is that we are starting to approach faith and Jesus in this way. In that, well, if I come to Jesus, he's going to help me with my marriage. And if I come to Jesus, he's going to help me with my kids. And if I come to Jesus, then I'm going to be a better person. And if I come to Jesus, oh, yeah, I don't go to hell, so that's kind of a plus. So, okay, where do I sign up? How do I become a Christ follower? And it's, it's all intellectual. But once again, the problem with that is if we can be reasoned into our faith, then we can be reasoned out of our faith. And just like the washing machine, when it breaks down and when it doesn't work like you don't want it to and what doesn't perform up to your expectations and when it no longer meets your needs, you discard it and you go on to the new thing. I think too many times when we approach God based on our intellect and just based on what we expect him to do and just based on what needs he's going to meet for me and the things that he's going to do for me, the second that he no longer does that, the second that he no longer fulfills his end of the deal, the second he no longer cleans the clothes like I need him to, it's we're on to the next thing. We push him back and we forget about him and we try to do it ourselves. And this is what happens when we approach faith purely from an intellectual standpoint. But it doesn't start there. It all starts with a love for God because you can't reason away love. You can't reason yourself in to loving someone. Like some of you know that just because of the mere fact of the person you're sitting next to in church right now. If you were to look at that person, we were to bring you up on stage and we were to really dissect who you are, you, we would all be like, how did you guys end up together? Like what in the one? Some of you, you look at your spouse and you wonder, how did we end up together? You know? But you love them because love defies reason. Some of you have friends that you look at and you're like, I don't know how we're friends, but man, I love you know that you're friends and you can't, you can't reason it away. Some of you, you look at some of your friends, you're like, if I were to look at it logically, I should probably no longer be friends with that person. But I love them. You know, that that we have a love that transcends reason. Because how ludicrous would it be if if we tried to reason people into loving us? That if you're, maybe you're a single guy here in this place, and there's this girl sitting across, you know, the the auditorium or, you know, your classroom from you, and you're like, hey, girl, what's up? You know? (laughs) I've prepared a very strong pro and con list as to why you should go on a date with me. I bathe regularly. I'm seldom withdrawn on my bank account. My car has just gotten oil changed. You know, it's pretty good order. You know, it's like, ain't none of us falling for that, you know? No one's, no one's going to do that. You go up to a group of friends like, hey, guys, you know, I've, I've got a very convincing PowerPoint argument as to why we should be good friends. 
hey, kids, you know, uh, sit down. Daddy's prepared a really strong uh, presentation with some pie charts and some graphs as to why I'm a really good father and you should love me. Like, it sounds so insane. And, and yet I worry sometimes just in the church in general that, that we don't come to people and we say, okay, guys, here's some good reasons why you should follow Jesus. Here's some good reasons why you should be a Christian. And, and I wonder if, if, if we don't dig the foundation of our faith a little deeper than that, if it's, no wonder we're so easily blown over. Because it starts with a love for God. How do you fall in love with anyone? You spend time with them. You get to know them. And you get to know them in and out. And you get to experience things with them. And you go through things together. And over the course of time, don't you fall in love with someone? And that's, I don't think our relationship with God is any different. But the more we get around the things of God, the more we get to know the people of God, the more we get to know his heart, the more we get to know his will and his intent towards us, the more we see him operate in our lives and in the lives of others, that we develop a real and a sincere love for God. Now, I want to sidestep here for just a moment because I want to talk to a group of people in this room, maybe a majority of people in this room, that when you hear me talking about falling in love with God and, and you know, having a love for God, there's a part of you that's just kind of like, eh, kind of weird. You just kind of push back on that a little bit. And, and I want to tell you, so I think the church in general has done a disservice, even in the worship music that we write, in maybe the messages that, that are preached, and not, not so much, but just, just kind of globally, um, in that we overemphasize the emotional aspect of loving God. And, and so there, there's three different types. Some of you may have heard this, three different types of love. There's eros, phileos, and agape. And, and you know, eros kind of like a romantic, emotional, passionate love. Phileos, our, our brotherly love, and agape, an unconditional love, kind of like we would experience parent toward a child, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. And the truth is, is that God is all three of those types of love. And so there absolutely is an emotional component to loving God. That loving God should engage our emotions at some point. That if we go through our entire Christian experience absolutely emotionless, I don't believe we're experiencing the fullness of God's love. But on the same hand, and on the flip side of that coin, if we only use our emotions to gauge our love and our relationship with God. And if we only allow our emotions to be the measuring stick, did I feel God? Did I get the goosebumps? Do I have the butterflies in my stomach? Is God doing it? Am I crying? If we only allow that to be the measuring stick for our love for God, our love for God is not deep, but in fact, our love for God is shallow. That God wants to move us to a point where we are engaged in all aspects of love for him, that there is an emotional love, that there is an intimate love with him, sure, absolutely, but also that we mature to a point where I don't need emotions to know that I love God, where I don't need, I don't have to rely on just the feelings, but when I don't feel it, when it doesn't make sense, when I wish he would operate a different way, that I'm tied to him, and I say, but God, I see you, and I love you still, and I think that's even a deeper type of love for God, that, that he incorporates all of those types of love, an agape love of kind of like a parent relates to a child. Maybe for some of you, you know, when you hear about that idea of falling in love with God, it's just kind of like, ah, this sounds weird and it sounds hokey. And I would just encourage you that, that you can push to the point where, where you can love God with all that you are. And it doesn't have to be some fluffy, you and God are not going on a date, you know, you and God, you know what I mean? But, but that you can love God deeply 
and passion, no less passionately, but deep inside your heart. But at the same time, that there are times you will experience the emotional side of love. Maybe it's when you're in a worship song and just something just clicks and, and you just feel something towards God that you don't normally feel. Or even while you're reading a passage of scripture and you feel God speaking to you in a way that, that typically maybe doesn't happen, just something births inside of you and, and, and this emotion comes out. Or maybe when you're talking to someone, you get goosebumps because they're saying something and you realize in that moment, man, it's not this person. So God is talking to me right now through this person. You feel it. That there's times when we experience the, the emotional side of the love for God, but we can't just go on one or the other. God is all of these things, and loving God encompasses all of this. That's why we love him with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. That we love him in all of these areas, not just relying on one or the other, okay? All right, so Jesus said um, that we love God. Now, he could have just stopped there. He could have just said, Hey, love God, that's it. But Jesus does something here that's never been done before. He does something that, that was completely new. Because these scriptures were not just stuff Jesus made up. These are Old Testament scriptures. So love the Lord your God is actually found in Deuteronomy. But then he marries this with something that, which previous to this point, has never really been married before. So he says, you love the Lord your God. And then he tacks on a really important and. He says, and, and you do this. We find this in verse 39. This is a second is equally important, that you love your neighbor as yourself. It's vital for us to understand that this part of the commandment is second in sequence, but not in greatness. That this part is equal. It's on the same playing field as love for God. And this was so earth-shattering, this was so life-changing, because up to this point, you could love God and treat others like dirt. And if you don't believe me, you don't have to look any further than the story of the Good Samaritan. Maybe some of you have heard that term, you know, the Good Samaritan. Well, it actually comes from a story Jesus told where he talks about a Samaritan who was someone that the Jewish people looked down upon. They were second class in the eyes of the Jewish people. And he got mugged and he was beaten and left on the side of the road. And people passed by the Samaritan. And what did they do when they passed by the Samaritan? They walked to the other side of the road. And who were these people? These were the religious people. They were on their way to church. They were pastors and elders in the church. They were religious people, and they neglected the Samaritan. Because in their religious system, it was all about maintaining their own personal purity. That's why they couldn't touch people that were unclean. They couldn't touch things that were unclean. It was all about maintaining a personal holiness, even at the expense of others. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, no more, no longer, that from now on, love for God and love for people are married together, that they are of equal importance. And furthermore, that you can no longer love God without loving others. And some of you, you may have experienced that type of old covenant religion where people love God, but go home and yell at their families. Where they love God, but gossip viciously about people behind their back. Where they love God, but treat their employees like garbage. And Jesus says, no more, no more. He comes on the system and says, comes on the scene and says, from now on, if you love God, it means you love God your neighbor, that you cannot separate these any longer. And this is so important because we see, I think if Jesus were to say it this way, uh, we're alive today, he would say it this way, that our love for God 
is illuminated, demonstrated, and authenticated by our love for others. That our love for God is illuminated, demonstrated, and authenticated by our love for others. That loving God is brought to light, it's brought to life, it's made real, it's verified that everything in our faith and our vertical relationship with God, the rubber meets the road in how we treat other people. And that is the real litmus test. That is the ultimate. If you want to talk about the ultimate to do, that's it. That we love people. And it's infinitely more simple than all of those commands, but it's infinitely harder. Because all of a sudden, it's not just about, do I check the list? But it's about, am I loving people? Am I loving my neighbors? Am I loving the people that God brought into my life? How am I treating them? How am I viewing them? Do I love them? Or is it simply all about me? That love for, for others is where the rubber meets the road. And this is so important for us to lay the, the foundation for the next few weeks, because over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about finding hope, healing, peace, and purpose. And we'll be talking about how we find that personally, and the things that we can do in our lives to find hope, healing, peace, and purpose, and the things that we can do as a church. But I want to tell you something. All the things that we do as a church, all of our spiritual disciplines, all of our Bible study, all of our prayer, all of our worship songs, all of our messages, all of our greeting, all of our kids' ministry, all of our youth ministry, all the things that we do, all of our, our prayer times together and all of our devotions and all of our Christian music and all the Christian stuff, it doesn't mean anything unless it leads us to love others, that it's useless as Paul would say, it's just a clanging symbol. It's just noise unless it leads us to love a hurt and lost and broken world, unless it leads us to love our neighbor, unless it leads us to love those that don't look like us and may not like us. It all comes back to love. And this is why we say every week at the core of who we are is loving God and is loving God and loving people. We cannot separate those two things. That God have mercy on us if we ever let our faith, if we ever let this church become all about just, God, more, more for me. More for me. I need, I need more children's programming for my kids. I need more youth programming for my kids. I need more adult programming for me so I can be fed, and so I can get fat and happy as a Christian. And it does not lead us out into the world. It does not lead us out into our workplaces and out into our schools and out into our neighborhoods and out into our families and to extend the love of Christ to people that, that may not otherwise ever encounter him. He's calling on us to do it, church. And that's the type of church we're going to be. And that's the type of church we've got to be. This is the type of church that changes the world. And I think when the church is at its worst is when the church becomes all about the church. Amen. The church is at its worst when it becomes all about us. But the church is at its best, and it's as God designed it, it's as Jesus envisioned it when we go and we radically take the love of God out to a hurt and broken people. And if we do that, church, we will be a church that's so irresistible. People may not know, people may not think like us, they may not agree with us, they may not understand the whole Jesus thing, but they will understand love. They will understand love, and that's what God has called us to do. I want to close with this thought. So as we talk about loving God and we talk about loving others, one of the things we have to understand is that there has to be something that happens in us before we can fully do that. So we can't love others 
And we can't love God completely until we understand that we are loved completely. We can't love unless we're open to receiving love. And some of you in this place, you have a hard time connecting with God and you have a hard time connecting with others because deep down there is a brokenness inside of you where you feel like fundamentally you are unworthy of receiving love. That you let people into a certain point, but they feel like if they knew the real me, they wouldn't want me anymore. If, God, if, if I really laid out who I am, the insecurity, the pain, the regret, the shame, that if they really knew me, if they, that they wouldn't want me. And so it always forces you, maybe subconsciously, but there's always this thing where you keep people at an arm's distance because deep down you feel broken and you feel like you don't have value or you don't have worth. And it's impossible to love God and it's impossible to receive his love and it's possible to love others and to give love to them because fundamentally there is something in you that will not receive love. And so I want to tell you, from I want to talk to you for just a moment because this is what I want you to understand about this, is you do not get to assign value to you. Because value is always assigned by someone else. Value is always assigned by someone else. Here's what I mean by that. So um, I have bought and sold a lot of guitars in my lifetime. Thank you, honey. I appreciate that. Um, But she's right, actually. If, if you guys, if, if I told you how many guitars have come and gone through my hands, you'd probably have me institutionalized. I mean, it's, it's borderline sickness. I probably need a blue chip for it, buddy. You know, it's just, yeah. Um, but, and, I, and I've had nice guitars. If, if, if you know anything, you know, even if you're not a musician, you've heard names like Fender and Gibson. You know, it's nice, high-dollar, expensive guitars. I want to tell you, this right here, this is my favorite guitar. But what's interesting about this guitar is this is the least expensive guitar I currently own. And it's one of the least expensive guitars that I've owned, period. Now, some of you may have heard the name Fender, you know, like Fender Stratocaster, you know, um, Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton, you know, Fender guitars. So this guitar is not even a Fender, but it's a Squire, which is the line that Fender makes for people who can't afford real Fenders. That's what this guitar is. So according to the world and according to resale and MSRP and all of that, this guitar is not worth a whole lot. It doesn't have a whole lot of value. But this is my favorite guitar. And this guitar has value to me because the world doesn't assign value to this. I assign value to this. And this is the guitar that if, if you know, I had to pick one, this is the guitar that's coming with me. If, heaven forbid, the house was burning down, I was running in, you know, after I grabbed the kids, you know. <laughs> if I have any room left in the arms, this is the guitar I'm going to grab. It's my favorite guitar. And even though the world doesn't see the value in it, even though the, the sum of its components may not be that valuable, there is a value in this to me. I value this guitar more than it should be valued. And for some of you here today, you're not the smartest, you're not the fastest, you're not the best looking, and you, you live with all the mistakes. You know, you know every, every sinful urge, you know every failure, you know every shortcoming, you know, and because of that, you don't feel like you have value. 
Because of that, you feel like you are just the sum of your parts and those parts aren't worth a whole lot. And so what good could I be to others? What good could I be to God? I don't have a whole lot of value. What I wanna tell you something here today, church, is that you have a father in heaven that loves you and that values you and values you more for what you're worth. He doesn't see your faults. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your shame or your sin. He sees you and he values you tremendously, completely, 100%. He values you. And he sees all the same faults. He sees everything that you've fallen short. And he sees it all. And he calls you his own. That he values you more than the sum of your parts. That he values you more than the world values you. That he values you more than your family values you. And most importantly, he values you way more than you value yourself. That you have a God that loves you completely. And church, I just think if, if we got a hold of that, that, that our love for God would come so naturally and so freely, because I know how messed up I am. I know, I know the, the, the inner things that no one else sees. I know all of those things. And God knows those. And he loves me in spite of all that. And his love for me, you know what, it's not based on the things that I do. It's not based on the checklist. His love for me is not based on how well I perform. His love for me is not based on how much I do. That he values me just for who I am. That his love for you here today is not based on how well you do the Christian thing. That he loves you and he values you just for who you are. You bring bring pleasure to the heart of God. You, You delight the heart of God. And that as you're here today, that he has a value on you. That, that my prayer for you is that you will see that value. And then as we do that, it causes us to just, man, it causes us to love God, heart, soul, mind, strength. And not only that, but then we can't keep that love bottled up because love like that is too good to keep to ourselves. And it causes us to just burst out of these doors, out into an unsuspecting world that is going to be hit and transformed with the love and the power of Christ. This is why you are valuable in the sight of God. He loves you, church. He brought you here today just so you could hear those words. He loves you, and you have value to him. You are not the sum of your parts. You are not the sum of your mistakes, and you are not the sum of your regrets and failures. But you have a value that is beyond all of that because you are a child of God.